Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this Engendered Survivor Story Series episode, our guest is Sophia, an African-American woman and public school teacher. Sophia shares with us today her experiences as a woman of color navigating the healthcare industry, one which, through inadequate diagnoses, treats the symptoms of illness rather than focusing on prevention and long-term patient wellness. Our conversation explores the ways in which these systemic forces have shaped Sophia's medical choices, the harms that have resulted, and the ways in which systemic racism and sexism have played a role in Sophia's healthcare journey. Welcome, Sophia. Hi, thank you. So before we started this interview, I gave you some background into what I learned about the healthcare industry and how women are positioned in it from my interview with Jennifer Block, the author and journalist of Everything Below the Waist. And I wanted to get a just a sense of the information that I shared. Was that something that was surprising to you? Had you known about it? Was it something instinctively that you felt but never had validated or verified? I wasn't aware of uh, Jennifer's book, but I did a lot of research on my own because I had a tremendous journey that led up to having major surgery last summer. What alarmed me when I first started my research was the pioneer behind a lot of OBGYN medical practices. And the doctor's name is James Marion Sims. Yes, that there was a hi- history of racism behind OBGYN as a profession. Yes, and not just not just racism, but the fact that he developed the vaginal speculum that is still used today on enslaved African women without anesthesia. So the birth of OBGYN practice was done in the context of slavery with women of the African diaspora who were unwilling to give permission to do so in a way that was very cruel. So it doesn't really surprise me to see that that cruelty and that insensitivity has continued throughout the healthcare for women. I didn't learn about Dr. Marion Sims until recent months because of the Black Lives Matter movement. And then people started posting images, right, of those posters. I forgot what museum it was in the South that had posters of him experimenting on Black female slaves and and they were asked to be removed. But I, I it's just, here's part of the history of our country that we should be aware of as women, as people who care about ending racism. And to have that not be something that we're taught is just incredible. So I, coincidentally, you know, I'm having these conversations and learning more about it. But yes, there's, there seems to be a lot of misogyny and, and racism behind the formal construction 
of obstetrics and gynecology as a modern institution? Yes, Terry. And as a daughter of the South, I don't want to just make this a Southern phenomenon because Dr. Sims has uh, statues dedicated to him in New York City as well and in Pennsylvania as well as South Carolina. Yeah, I heard about that. Were they removed, the ones in New York, or they're still in discussion? I'm not sure if they've been removed yet or if they're still in discussion. Okay, yes, I definitely. All of us have been complicit, and including your uh, neighbors from the North. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, not that this is a laughing matter, but it's so absurd that, that we're having this discussion in 2020 and that it should even have to be discussed at this point. So let's turn to your own personal experience. So last year, you were faced with a decision, a medical decision of what to do. So can you walk us through what your initial contact was with the medical system when you start having symptoms? What was it like? Who did you encounter and how did they respond? Uh, initially, uh, my journey with my fibroid began with my doctor giving me my annual exam and telling me, oh, I see a tiny little fibroid about the size of a pea. And it didn't surprise me that I had a fibroid. And I thought, oh, this is just like my mom, just like my sisters. I have a sister who's who's older than me. Sorry, I have two sisters. One who is um, deceased and a younger sister, younger than her. And they both had issues with fibroids. And... I thought because I really had such a great diet, I try to exercise, I try to uh, relax and do meditation and prayer uh, and just to do a lot of things to sort of like calm me down and to keep me centered that I would somehow be immune to this. And I didn't really think that much of having a tiny little pea-sized fibroid. I just somehow thought that it would remain tiny and pea-sized, but it did not. Would you mind sharing at what age you found this out, your doctor identified this? I'm not sure of the exact age I was when the doctor found the pea-sized fibroid, but I want to say that I was in my 40s at least. Okay, and so it was part of a routine pelvic exam, your annual, I'm guessing. What's the typical recommendation of what to do? Do you do a biopsy? Do you do a sonogram? What happens next? So the next steps are just to just keep an eye on it. And uh, in the meantime, I actually switched OBGYN doctors. And by the time I switched to the new doctor, it had become an egg-sized fibroid. And she talked to me about different options. Uh, There was freezing. There was everything but surgery being the last option. But once again, I thought, you know what? I'm not going to go with modern medicine. I am going to go in the direction of alternative medicine or holistic medicine. So then I began to change my diet because by this time, my sister uh, had already had, she had had a huge set of fibroids removed and she was my little sister. So she was only in her thirties and she'd had the surgery. 
I knew that my mom had had that surgery when I was in college. She had had a, I believe, full hysterectomy. So I thought that little tiny piece size of fibroid has now become the size of an egg. It's probably going to keep growing now. I switched over to uh, looking into changing my diet, and I started eating all organic foods. I went to a alternative uh, holistic practitioner who helped me with uh, detoxing a couple of times throughout the year. I went to Chinese medicine. I looked online and followed some hormone balance tips, uh, such as seed rotation and adding some other things into my diet, like turmeric, some things that would hopefully not only stop the fibroid from growing, but something that would decrease it in its size. I also drank several teas and was very optimistic. Uh, Did all the things that I had read that I should do in order to stop it from growing. But each year when I went, it was still growing. So I would just up at another level and up at another level because I wanted to, I wanted to show my OBGYN that I didn't have to have all those things that she kept offering me. But the one thing that was missing that I don't think we talked enough about, which I think is extremely important, is genetics. So she knew your history. If she took into account your genetic background, how would that have changed the recommendations that she provided? Would there be a greater level of urgency or she wouldn't have taken this like lackadaisical approach? Like, let's just wait and see, you know, how it goes from pea size to, how do you describe the next size, egg size, from pea to egg size? Yes. So I really needed the genetic information. I needed the genetic counseling. And what I realized now and didn't know at the time was that is the big world that genetics plays in this. So I may have been changing my diet. I may have been doing all, checking all the boxes and doing all the right things, but I wasn't really fully aware of how much my gene, the role that my genes were playing in my healthcare. And that's the piece that no one really sat down with me to talk with me about, to sort of do this unveiling and to discuss, to help me to understand and to help them understand how my mom had fibroids, you know, my aunts, my grandmother, so many women in my family had it and ended up having hysterectomies. So that was the missing conversation for me. I knew it in the back of my head that people in my family had, but I just didn't know and understand the big factor that genes would also play in in my healthcare and in my need to maybe not just do alternative medicine, but do some other things while I was that were that were non-invasive while I was also trying to concentrate on doing concentrating on following a holistic path as well. So that's the piece that was missing. So since you're talking about that genetic component, I had not, I had 
know nothing about women's health before talking with Jennifer, sadly. And I learned from reading her book that I know I've heard that you shouldn't eat a lot of tofu because I'm trying to, um, because of the estrogen component. And it really didn't hit me until I read about in her book, the fact that fibroids run on estrogen and that so many diets that are high in sugar and simple carbs, even our environmental pollutants, like the creams, the skincare creams, the cosmetics, the apparently the hair relaxers for black women, they all have estrogen and they all contribute to potentially um, having women having a higher risk of fibroids. So I'm wondering, was this part of the discussion at all either at any point in your life? No, I, I discovered that in my own research. And what I was trying to do in working with my holistic practitioner was to have a, an estrogen and progesterone balanced body and hormone level. So I really had a pretty strict diet. And I can tell you what I ate. I only ate organic fruits and vegetables, wild-caught salmon, only a limited amount of wild-caught salmon and wild-caught sea bass, uh, maybe no more than uh, 12 ounces a week. I was also doing some detoxes, which included some apple cider vinegar and neem just to, to, to try to have a healthy gut. So and there was no refined sugar because, of course, there's um, sugar in fruit. But I was also limited to how much fruit I had as well. So it was mostly large green leafy vegetables, broccoli, cauliflower. Occasionally on this regimen, uh, I was allowed to have a sweet potato. That was only occasionally. And if I ate a banana, it couldn't be too ripe. So I, I really thought that I was doing the right things. And not to say that I wasn't doing the right things, but once again, there's the genetic factor. Yeah. And if you've had decades of not doing that, I'm sure it's hard to look peek under, you know, our body, our skin of what kind of impact that's had on our body, right? We don't know until until they look down and, and um, or we feel the, the outcomes or the symptoms or they look and they're t- removing something. So let's talk about the decision to, for them to recommend that you get a hysterectomy. What was that process like? At what point did they say you need a hysterectomy? Because when it was egg size, that they, didn't still, they still didn't want to remove it. It was that point where you were still working on the holistic and alternative diet. I was still working on that. And just in a matter of time, it, the growth just seemed to really pick up a lot of speed. And, you know, perhaps it was environmental being in New York City, but, uh, you know, my family's from the South. Uh, We had fresh fruits and vegetables. I hadn't eaten McDonald's since 10th grade. (laughs) And uh, I had the surgery at 49. It was a very, very tough decision, but it was a decision that was made after several years of having to go into the emergency room from excruciating pain. The fibroid had gotten so big that 
it was like the size of a six month fetus in my uterus. And it was putting pressure on my colon. So it was causing some issues there. And it was uh, putting pressure on my spine to the point where I was having excruciating episodes of neurological pain from my fingertips to the tips of my toes. (laughs) And it, it would come on suddenly and it was, it would just completely knock me out. I, I can't say that I've ever experienced that kind of pain before, but I just couldn't go on living that way every month. The pain was unbearable. Fibroids causes heavy bleeding and uh, heavy bleeding to the point where I, I'd wear a, a tampon and I, I had out, I, I could no longer wear feminine pads for my cycle. I had to up it to the, the depends because I was bleeding so heavily and I would have to change like every two hours. And if I were in a class and I couldn't leave and go to the, to the restroom to, to change anything, you know, maybe I was sitting in a chair and I'd get it from the chair and I'd leave stains in the chair from where I was sitting next to a student, even in my commute home. Oftentimes I would have to stand despite the fact that I was in a lot of pain and was cramping tremendously because I knew if I sat down, I'd probably leave a stain. Uh, And sometimes I did. There were times that I was in meetings. I'm a strong parent advocate in public schools. And I'd be in a meeting and leading a meeting in front of a crowd of other people. And I'd stand up and the chair would be covered. So, you know, I just no longer wanted to live with that kind of anxiety and that kind of fear and that kind of of pain. Were there alternatives at that point to a hysterectomy? Like, were they, they couldn't just take out the fibroid because it was too big at that point? It was too big at that point. And did the doctor explain to you what the risk and after effects would be potentially of a hysterectomy? Yes. My doctor, uh, who, who actually happened to be a young African-American woman, uh, and I say young relatively, uh, meaning I think she's close to my age. I'm 50. Uh, she had had the surgery herself. So she was able to speak to me from a, a personal perspective. She was willing to spend as much time as I needed to sit next to me and to talk to me and to uh, answer any questions that I had, any questions that my husband had. Uh, and she continued to show that, that level of care and concern even throughout my stay in the hospital where she made sure that I had the kind of foods that I needed. She sent in uh, someone to help me with meditation. I didn't even know they had people like that in the hospital. She sent in uh, therapists that I didn't even know existed, like mobility therapists in the hospital. Someone came in and she brought me essential oils that I could use. So she was very understanding of the kind of the kind of healthcare that I like 
that is a little bit less traditional and more holistic. And uh, she became a, my, my greatest advocate. Uh, it just got to the point where I really needed to have the surgery. And I think I could have avoided a lot of that had I known, even when it was pea-sized, to just do something about it. And that's something that I want to pass on to my daughters uh, because it's in their genes. It's in our genes. And, you know, I give a nod to all of those uh, women that I've met in person, that I talk to, that I converse with online, who actually had their fibroids to shrink successfully. And I just thought, with all the faith that I have in my body, that that would be my story as well. But my story turned out a little differently. And perhaps my story turned out this way so that I could pass on information to the next generation so that my daughters and, you know, they have daughters, they'll know to be very proactive in the very beginning because genes do matter. And I think there's a lack of research for women, by women, for women's bodies and women's health care. And even when you break that down and you break it into a smaller component of women of color, there's so little research that's really done other than what Dr. Sims did, if you really want to call that research, <laughs> legitimate research about our genetics. One statistic that I recall from speaking with Jennifer Block was that endometriosis, you know, which is um, very common among women. It affects, I think, over 6 million women in this country and has a cost of billions of dollars in lost wages and healthcare costs, etc. There's so few research dollars for that, um, I guess, disease, I don't know, for that condition that there's not even a lab test to confirm a diagnosis. You have to, the only way to confirm it is through exploratory surgery, which is crazy. Yes. Right? I mean, or a machine that can, you know, identify it. This is why we have to encourage our daughters to go into science and medicine and research. So, you know, when you were describing your doctor saying, oh, it's, she gave you all of the treatment that you like because you like more holistic support, I just thought, well, that seems just like good medicine. I mean, it's not, I would see everyone wanting to prefer that versus the medicalized version, the sanitized version. Perhaps she does, but she really made me feel special. <laughs> <laughs> and did she contrast at all to previous doctors you've had? Because I understand that you had to advocate to find her. Uh, she did. She went through, she went through my record. She, like I said, when we first met, she took a, a long time meeting with me. At that point, I was having a discussion about my family history, but this is at a point where I'm right at the, the threshold of deciding to allow this to happen. And really, I mean, I still had a choice in the matter, but uh, in many ways, I didn't feel like I, I had a, a choice anymore uh, other than to continue to suffer. But she 
And she talked about the fact that I could not do this, but there was no way that she could prevent me from having the pain that I was having and the other issues that I was having in terms of the GI issues and the neurological issues. So, of course, you know, she could have allowed me to to continue to live with that. But she looked at, you know, the history with my mom, the history with my sisters having fibroids, the history of women in my family having hysterectomies. And, you know, we just talked about the best issue. Uh, I mean, the not the best issue, but the best outcome for me would be having a partial hysterectomy as opposed to a full hysterectomy. And at 50, I'd had four kids. I wasn't looking to have any more babies. <laughs> so, you know, me not having my uterus anymore wasn't really as big of an issue to me. If I was still of childbearing age and I didn't have children, I wanted to have children, uh, you know, even at, at 49 when I had the surgery. But there are a lot of risks to take in having surgery. So the partial hysterectomy, how common is that compared to a full? I'm not sure what the data is around that, but I love this doctor, as you can tell. And I just got the impression that she doesn't do full hysterectomies unless it's fully necessary. And she was the very first doctor to actually take a biopsy in all those years. Which apparently is very rare. Yes. And it came back negative. But she said, it's so huge, we can't cover all the areas. So we don't really know, you know, every section of this fibroid because of its size. Subsequent to your partial hysterectomy, have you suffered any of the complications that are common to women who've had them? So some of the examples that were shared that I learned about included apparently incontinence, prolapse, difficult moving one's bowels, reduced mobility, pain, obviously, loss of sexual response or sensation, your hip bones drifting apart and impacting your gait, diminished blood flow, and nerve damage. So any has, has, have you experienced any of those symptoms? Okay, where do I start with that? <laughs> so I had complications right away. I came out of surgery and told the nurse, I can't breathe. And so I left my doctor's care, who, I, who made me feel really special and who I, I think very highly of and who uh, just seems to be compassionate as well as skilled. And I was in recovery with a nurse who kept saying, just press the button. So every time I pressed the button, I would get, it would just knock me out because it was the, the pain relief button. I think it was downloaded or something, morphine, and I was so dizzy. And every time I woke up, I'd be like, oh, I can't breathe. She'd be like, press the button. <laughs> Which was horrible. I do recall them I, because I think my husband advocated for it having a a nebulizer treatment and that made me feel a little better so by the time I made it upstairs to the to the room and was admitted I was still seeing I can't really breathe that well and they're like oh that's just the side effect of the the painkiller that you're taking I I don't think it was morphine I think it was diluted or something like that because I have a high pain threshold 
So morphine doesn't do anything for me. It has no impact, no effect on me whatsoever. Um, Tordal and Dilaudid actually have an uh, impact of leaving pain for me. I said, okay, well, you know, I've never had this much uh, inside of me, especially after I kept pressing that button in the recovery room so many times uh, and just like knocking myself out. Okay. Um, you know what you're talking about? You're a nurse. You see this all the time. This is my first time. So, so be it, right? But it ended up that I had a pulmonary embolism. I had blood clots in my lung. When did you find that out? I found out that I had a pulmonary em- embolism by accident. Would you believe that? I found out I had a pulmonary embolism because I kept telling them that I felt like I had a volcano in my stomach. Like, I felt like something was erupting in my stomach. And they kept giving me Tums. And and I wouldn't say they kept giving it to me because they were stingy with giving me the Tums. They were full on giving me all the pain meds that I wanted. I'll press the button, press the button for the diluted. But, you know, like, I I have an inferno in my belly. Something's going wrong. And they're like, oh, you can have another set of antacids in like six hours. I'm like, no, something's really happening. And the next day I, I regurgitated bile and, you know, they give you those pink basins in the hospital. So I nearly filled it. And this is where the scary part comes in healthcare, right? You have your doctor, you trust your doctor, but when you're in recovery, you don't really know everything to expect. And not everybody's going to listen to you the same way that your doctor did. So, you know, when she came back, I was like, oh, you know, I threw up some bowels. She was like, oh, that little bit. They didn't even report to her how much it was. And she wasn't getting this information that I couldn't really breathe. So she was, so it happened again that next morning. I regurgitated another full pink basin of bowels. And she was like, oh, they told me it was pretty significant. I was like, last night was even more. She was like, oh, they didn't tell me that. They just told me it was a little bit. I was like, no. She's like, oh, my God, let's get you to have a a scan. So I go in for the scan, and they're really good at saying, oh, you just have an ileus, which is pretty normal after this type of surgery to have an ileus. And that's where your colon sort of has to, to wake up a little bit. So it's like slow because it's, you know, you, you've taken all these drugs, and you, you, you've gone through the surgery, and it, it has to wake up. So they were like, oh, you just probably have an alias. That's all that it is. But I had a full obstruction. My colon was completely twisted. And during that scan, the radiologist just happened to see a tiny little portion of my lungs. And told the doctor, you might want to scan her lungs because it looks like she might have a blood clot here. So before this discovery, I had the night before feared that I was not going to make it. My husband was in the room with me. And that whole night, we sat up and prayed because somehow within me, I knew something told me, if you fall asleep, you're not going to wake up. And this was before they discovered anything. Like I felt, I felt awful. I felt this inferno burning of me and I couldn't breathe. And even on a regular basis, when you have a asthmatic, when you need your, your rescue inhaler, they say you can use it every four hours. They were so stingy 
They wouldn't even give me my own rescue inhaler except for every six hours. Can you believe that? And they they said, oh, she probably doesn't have a blood clot. We'll get the scan. This isn't my doctor, but this is the nurses um, and the doctors in the hospital who are caring for me. She probably does not have a a small bowel instruction. She probably just has an alias. She probably does not have a, a blood clot because we've been given her, I never say this word correctly, so if I do, it's like a, a really good bonus for me, anticoagulant, we've been given her that. So she probably does not have a blood clot, because I was getting shots in my arm and in my back to prevent blood clotting. But you know what? I had a small balance obstruction. Thank God that I didn't lose my life over that, because I'd had it for a couple of days and was still eating. They were still encouraging me to eat. And I had blood clots in my lungs. And I had it right away in recovery because I kept telling the nurse, I can't breathe. Help me, I can't breathe. Press the button, press the button, she kept saying. Just press the button. I have to ask you, what color were your nurses and the people who were working on your post-surgery care? They were all Euro-American. They were all white. Except for, except for, except for this one nurse who was, uh, who was young. She was African-American and I could just tell by the look in her eyes because, you know, she's never, she's just a young woman. She hadn't really experienced a whole lot. I don't think that she was even, maybe she, she did have a child, but, you know, I just don't think she'd been through a lot in terms of like healthcare as a woman. And she would just kind of look at me like, you're so dramatic. <laughs> You're just being so dramatic. And she was the one that I was refusing at night. She was like my night nurse. She was a refusing at night when I felt the most uncomfortable to give me the the Tums or whatever, the Pepsi. That's what it was. She was the one that was refusing to give me the Pepsi and was refusing to give me the inhaler. And I'm not sure that she was really calling the doctor when she said that she was, because I could just tell from just the way, she, you know, she was kind, but I could also tell that she felt like, okay, you're not the only woman that's had this surgery. You know, I've been doing this and, you know, just calm down. You're just being a bit dramatic. I mean, the reason I ask, you know, obviously there's a healthcare disparity by race, especially for women of color, for black women in this country, especially during labor and delivery <laughs> and postpartum care. But what I found interesting was that when I was talking with Jennifer and reading her book, that there's almost everybody in the healthcare industry, including the nurses, who are mainly women in this country, they were complicit in engaging in what would be described by someone that Jennifer interviewed as the violent enforcement of the sexual caste system. So examples where nurses, female nurses, would physically push the baby back into a laboring woman because the doctor wasn't present yet, and she's not ready to deliver. We're not going to allow you to deliver the baby. That kind of thing, which caused, apparently it led to a $16 million settlement, but it caused permanent nerve damage and lots of other issues in this woman. But that level of complicity, and so it's disappointing to hear that this black nurse also, when you're in that system, you know, you also adopt the mindset that women and black women are just, they're just overly sensitive. (laughs) Strong, but overly sensitive. 
I don't know that overly sensitive is the word. I just think that uh, dramatic is the word. Like just dramatic is, is probably more of an accurate description. But I learned it from my from having lost my mom and my sister. So I'll just tell you a little bit about that. My mom uh, was first diagnosed with colon cancer in her 40s. And she died in her 50s, but it wasn't really the colon cancer that she that took her life. It was MRSA that she got in the hospital that took her life while she was in the hospital. So, yes, she did have colon cancer, but it was the MRSA that had eaten away at parts of her body that eventually took her life. A few years later, my sister had a blood clot. And went into the hospital and did not come back home. So we lost her because of something that she also contracted in the hospital. She got E. coli and she got C. diff. Both got to her brain and caused neurological damage. And her body just corroded from the inside. So... Part of me knows that one reason why I have a lot of anxiety about going into the hospital and having this major surgery is because of the experiences that uh, my sister had and that my mom had with poor hygiene. And there's no other way to really get around that. Has Black women in the hospital. One was in Texas. My mom perished in Texas. And um, my sister transitioned in Tennessee. So there were two totally different hospitals. So, you know, I, I knew from their experience, from experiences and being in the hospital room with them that oftentimes people, and I don't know that it's race specific, but I know that people don't always have the best care in mind, maybe the best intentions, but not the best actions. And they're not proactive in terms of like being very clean and washing their hands. You know, sometimes you'll see a nurse go and empty the, um, the hat and the toilet seat and the bathroom. And then they'll come with the same gloves on and we'll move the food tray. Pretty common. And we would have to say, and we were there. So it's important to have someone that's there who can be your advocate. And we were there and we would say, oh, you need to change clubs. And people would be, really be offended, you know? And I don't know if it was because we were not expected to, to advocate having the best possible care, the best possible treatment for our mom, for our sister. I don't know. But I have to say it was my husband. Going back to something you said originally about advocacy and about the, the caste system within the hospital and how female nurses are complicit to that, regardless of race. It was it was my husband who really let all the doctors know every time they came in from that point on. I can remember if it was after the diagnosis, before the diagnosis, I don't remember. But he was like, research shows that uh, black women are not treated well by this healthcare system, and that's not going to be the case here. You're going to need to do this for her. When she says you need to change gloves, you change gloves right away. If she asks you to wash your hands, you wash your hands. And here she is, you know, as someone who's like almost losing her life because people aren't listening to her. 
research shows this. And I'm not just saying this. Research shows that uh, doctors in healthcare and nurses don't listen to black women. You are listening to her. She's been telling you for days she couldn't breathe. She was telling you. So he was like, really? And this is, you know, multiple times he had these engagements. And uh, I have to say that those nurses who did disregard my voice and disregarded my healthcare needs were moved to the opposite side of the hospital. <laughs> so they were no longer my nurses. They got moved. And uh, my doctor, who my beloved doctor, I think she has some choice words as well with the head nurse about uh, the neglect of those nurses and listening to me because the head nurses came into the room repeatedly asking if I was okay and letting me know that those nurses that um, were taking care of me when I was expressing what my needs were, were no longer going to be um, nurses. I would no longer be under their care. Even if you're wealthy, class doesn't protect you, right? Because we think of Serena Williams, and you use the word dramatic. And historically in medicine, the term hysterical has been used to describe women whenever yes. we've had symptoms. And so just to the pathologizing of women's pain yes. and suffering and the normalization. And and so I I think um, it's interesting that your husband using his male status was able to get some sort of consideration, which is unfortunate because if you were just a single mom, what would have been the consequence? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it would not have been the same. I know it would not have been the same. <laughs> Let's bring us to the present. You're a teacher in New yeah. York City, and you've shared that you've had these uh, ongoing symptoms, the uh, challenges, pulmonary challenges, and with the blood clots, apparently that's still ongoing. So can you share with us what happened in your recent checkup with your doctor, a different <laughs> doctor this time? So I, I want to, to be clear that the, the blood clot that I had revealed that I have a genetic blood disorder. And that goes back to uh, why my sister initially went into the hospital. So now I am better armed with that information. And you would think that because my doctors are also armed with that information, my pulmonology uh, physician as well as my hematology physician that, uh, you know, they know my risk with uh, asthma, as well as my tendency for my, uh, my blood to clot very easily. So given the fact that I have a predisposition to uh, clotting easily, and that I have pre-existing pulmonary issues that either individually or the two of them together would have second thoughts when I ask them the question, is it safe for me to go to the classroom before telling me yes? Beginning with my pulmonologist, who I just met during the time of COVID, when I had a, uh, a respiratory emergency that was so dire that they took me from the urgent care by ambulance to the nearest hospital. It was not uh, COVID. 
thank God. But it was a severe asthma attack. Uh, and I just wasn't able to get enough oxygen and, and was home for some days for that. You know, he saw me in the midst of that. And his response when I asked him was more of a political response than a professional medical opinion. He shared with me his opinion about schools restarting and teachers needing to go back to the classroom. That included me. He went on to say that he has children and that they, he believes that uh, people, I uh, didn't say specifically who these people are, but that people are making a bigger deal than there has to be about children not wanting to wear their mask because he believes that children will wear their mask and that everyone will be safe. But he was concerned about the fact that I had clots. I said, you know, more than a pulmonary issue, I would investigate with your hematologist the clots because we are seeing that clots are causing issues for people that have COVID-19. Even people that didn't have blood clots before are now developing blood clots. And, uh, you know, it's something to be taken seriously. So, you know, his answer was no. He's not going to give me what the city is uh, requiring of, of teachers to submit for a medical waiver to work from home. So we're not talking about not working at all and just staying at home and being on vacation. We're talking about working in the school building in person or working remotely. So basically, no. Refer me to my hematologist. My hematologist says, well... You do have this clotting issue, and I understand his concern, but since he's so concerned about it, go back to him because your clots were in your lungs. It's a pulmonology issue. So I said to him, I called him back. He called me back, uh, and he said, I said, yeah, I talked to the hematologist, and she understands your concern, the clotting issue, and I understand how you're concerned about it. Because you brought it up to me. I was not even aware of that. And I really do appreciate it. And I thank you for bringing this to my attention. So she has expressed interest in possibly teaming up with you to do a joint letter together so that I could work from, from home and not be at risk with my asthma and my genetic blood clotting disorder, being in the classroom and risk contracting COVID and having many complications from it. And his response was, teachers need to be in the classroom. More of a political response again. I said, well, you know, he sort of backtracked because he was the one that was concerned about the blood clots, right? <laughs> so now at this, he's, oh, before he, before he told me, you know, he was like, well, you know, there's some research, but there was a lot of research on this. And there just isn't enough research to just justify and he goes into this, this, this long explanation, backtracking his way from his concerns about me having the, the blood clotting disorder to justify saying this to me. If you're really that concerned, I could just put you on blood thinners and you can go back into the classroom. In other words, I'd rather put you on medication, medication that you don't necessarily need, but as a precaution. I'd rather do that and have you go back into the classroom and completely risk your life as opposed to allowing you to teach from home safely because of my political view about schools opening and reopening. So I'm going to ask you again, what color is he? 
doctor the uh, hematologist is and i don't want to get it wrong i'm not sure he's from pakistan or bangladesh okay so the pulmonologist is a white doctor and clearly questions the science behind mask wearing even which i think seems to be rare amongst the medical community wouldn't you say uh i'm not Oh, oh! With the referral, with the the reference to his his children, yeah, he believes in mask wearing, and he believes that his children will wear masks, and that school children will wear masks. He just but believes saying, that that there's going to be some more self policing that we that we think is going to happen in real life. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yes, and he believes that that small children will be able to self police themselves. Okay, so I'm not sure what kind of household he has <laughs> in his home. You know, obviously, this is the intersection of sexism and racism and capitalism in, in a way because your choices as a medical consumer are limited now, given the time. And I'm not sure, do you need a referral from him if you were to get a second opinion? Or can you just go get a second opinion? Is the insurance company going to stand in the way? Is there a procedure for getting an approval to even get a second opinion? I believe that they would pay for a second opinion. So I could get a second opinion, but uh, I went back to my beloved doctor who did the surgery a year ago and just talked to her about this. And, you know, she confirmed with me that this has become a very political issue in terms of the, the med- medical professionals being asked for these waivers or these letters, um, not just for teachers, but many others in many other professions. And she indicated that even if we were together to find a new set of doctors, those doctors most likely would not feel comfortable after just meeting me to submit something to my employer about my health history. Can you help me understand what the potential negative consequences would be to a set of doctors, whoever they are, you know, hypothetically, who were to actually write waivers or recommendations that a set of individuals in whatever profession need to have certain accommodations in order to be safe and still work in their jobs. They're not subject to an employer that is being paid by the government, the federal government, you know, in this case. So I'm not sure like how the chain of command would be such that they would feel like they don't have the autonomy to make a medical decision independently. Well, I think that's probably a drawback to my healthcare system, my personal healthcare system and network, which is a pretty huge conglomerate. These are not independent physicians. They work for this big, bigger uh, healthcare. So your insurance is through your union. Yes. Your teacher's union. And because all the healthcare providers are contracted to work for this union, if everybody, you know, or if a lot of people are working from home, then the union is not going to renew their contracts. Possibly, yeah. Okay, got it. Yes. I see. But if you wanted to, you would have to pay out of pocket to see anyone outside of the coverage of your insurance. 
And you yeah. could do that, but yes. you, you would need to have the money to do that. Yes. I, I don't see how our union could really work against us, but I could see how the healthcare, I just want to clarify, you're talking about the, the healthcare, the insurance provider right. may lose contract with the union because the healthcare company that these physicians are, are accepting to care for us is getting paid by this healthcare company and that if they write so many letters that sort of that takes away money from this from the healthcare industry if your union chooses what insurance provider to serve its teachers and the insurance provider contracts with certain medical professionals Yes. And those medical professionals are saying the doctors, I mean, the teachers, a lot of them don't need to or should not go to school. Then the teachers union, even though they're supposed to be on the side of the teachers, because they're not going to, they're going to get pressure from the board of ed, the board of education, they will feel pressure to want to discontinue their relationship with the insurance company, which will therefore negatively impact the people who are the doctors who are on that insurance company? Possibly. Possibly. It could boomerang. I could I could see where it might boomerang. But I think the whole issue is just become more of a political issue than a healthcare issue. So going back to my question, if you were to pay out of pocket to, to see someone who's not part of your insurance, you could do that if you wanted to get a letter of waiver. It would just cost you more money. I could do that. Uh, but I would also question the, I guess, a, a new physician could see my history and could see that I'm not making this up. So I, I don't know that I, I don't know. I don't know that someone who's just meeting me would want to submit that either, even if I paid out of pocket. Or perhaps someone would do that. What I'm looking to do is to our right to the practice and to let them know that this is what's happening and that there is already a disparity that's already been shown for healthcare for women of color. And that as I enter, enter into the classroom, they should um, prep their risk management because I'm letting my family know that if anything happens to me, I'm not just holding, I don't want my family to just hold these doctors accountable. I want them to hold the whole conglomerate practice accountable for this. Because I don't really know if it's protocol that's coming from above or if they just have this amount of autonomy and leverage to just make these decisions on their own. Maybe they're aware of it. Maybe they're not aware of it. Maybe it's only me. Maybe it's not just me. But I do want to put that information out there so that they are aware of that. And uh, just like writing a letter for boomerang on the doctor, not writing a letter for boomerang on the whole healthcare conglomerate. And so, you know, I'm sure you've heard and seen online that there the this debate about whether or not schools should reopen when other sectors have not opened, that there have been healthcare professionals, there's, there've been articles written, one I remember in The Atlantic, where uh, someone in the medical industry wrote that teachers, if we're, if we're going, if we're working, teachers should go back to work as well. 
and then there was a lot of backlash in that thread where teachers responded, you know, we don't have the same risk, we didn't sign up for this, blah, blah, blah. And then subsequently, yesterday, I believe, or the day before, Trump declared teachers essential workers as a way to, guess, uh, coerce all the states to to reopen. And it's um, it's an extension of the conversations that we've been having around the gendered impact of COVID, where both healthcare and certainly education are industries that are predominantly made up of women. And so it's interesting that one profession, the healthcare industry, was pushing for teachers to go back. You know, and I was thinking about that as a as a way in which, you know, if you're suffering, you want other people to suffer as well. You know, it wasn't a very sort of collaborative sisterly act for so many people to be wanting other people to be just as risk as, as they are instead of trying to change it and reduce the risk for everyone. But anyway, so I wanted to get your thoughts on Trump's recent declaration of teachers as essential workers. Mm-hmm. I think teachers are essential but essential workers, and that term has become a political term. I think that it's convenient to say that teachers are essential now because otherwise teachers are not very highly thought of. And if we were, Betsy DeVos would not be the head of (laughs) the Secretary of Education because she's a businesswoman and she's not an educator. Educators in, in general are really not as respected in this country at all in the same way that they are in other countries. I have a friend who does a, well, a friend of my husband's that oversees a a mentoring program. And he met with some men from Korea and he said, uh, you know, we were talking about young people and he said, there's just one thing that we just don't understand. And that these were South Koreans. And they said, the one thing we don't understand is why you don't respect your teachers more. We don't understand that. Why is it that you don't respect your teachers? We are casualties in this. The education arena, the teaching profession, as you mentioned, is uh, predominantly made up of uh, women and people of color. We are conveniently essential now. You know, to address your comment on cultural differences between why we don't respect teachers, I feel like this is my theory. We don't respect teachers because we don't want our kids to be educated, because we don't want people to, you know, children to develop critical thinking skills in this country, which is why we don't pay and value public education. Because if children were to be exposed to real education and thinking skills, they would see a lot of the history that we're trying to hide from them. They would see the intentions of what's happening in big business and all of these industries that are predatory. And they wouldn't be, including the professional sports industry. I mean, there's everything, fossil fuel, military, industrial complex, et cetera, on and on. And they would want to make change to those industries. They wouldn't be willing participants. And so we don't want to educate our students because we want them to be sheep. That's my opinion. I share that opinion. As an educator, as a mom, all, my, all of my kids have 
graduated and, you know, they're either graduates of uh, college or they're in college at the moment. And that was something that I had to give them myself. They had some great teachers, but it's a system that is a setup in many ways. And it's a setup, unfortunately, for um, many of our black and brown students in this city and across the, the country to stay where they are in their neighborhood. Looking back at your medical journey and now your experience as a teacher confronting these bad actors, I would call them, what would you say if you had some specific recommendations around policy or culture that we should consider in order to address some of the challenges that you've encountered and hopefully either prevent future women from being able to experience such harm? Initially, when I heard you asking that question, I thought, oh, you know, there has to be more uh, culturally relevant and culturally sensitive education done in medical schools. And I thought, oh, no, 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 no. It has to happen before medical school. And undergrad, no, 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 no. No, not high school, middle school, elementary school. It has to go back to, you know, when we're teaching our babies. (laughs) It has to go all the way back to the way that we expose ourselves and our children from the very beginning. Oftentimes, we are already conditioned to think the way that we are going to think, not to say that change is impossible for anyone. But, you know, humanity, too oftentimes, especially in the modern day, is about conditioning. And you just described how our education system is is about conditioning. <laughs> we have to recondition our, our children um, from the very, 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 very beginning. It makes me think about, you know, experiments that people have done where they've asked uh, children to look at a picture and children of different races look at this one picture where this black boy has money falling out of his pocket and a white boy is behind him reaching, reaching for the money. And the response that students say in the experiments is, you know, what is he trying to do? Oh, he's trying to help him out. He's losing his money. Then they reverse it. And they show where the white kid has money coming out of his pocket and the black boy is reaching towards the pocket. And they can say, oh, he's going to steal his money. He's going to take his money. And these are little kids. Something is already happening in terms of conditioning. And it's for us adults to have to make a decision that we want to make shifts. It can't just happen because we're conditioned, all of us. So we have to make the choice that we want to make shifts, because if we don't make shifts, then we can't really instill that into our children. So there has to be a generation of adults that have to decide overwhelmingly. We want to make shifts. We want to make cultural shifts, heart shifts. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for joining us in our conversation today. I hope that whatever outcome comes out of your conversations with your doctors, that it's something that will center your health and your autonomy. Thank you, Terry.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by CanDoIt Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join CanDoIt Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.